بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله All praises due to Allah And may the peace and the blessings be upon his beloved Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam I bear witness that there is no one worthy of worship except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And I bear witness that Muhammad Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Is the last and the final of the Prophet Sent to the entirety of mankind Brothers and sisters in Islam Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Welcome to part 2 Of what shall be inshallah An engaging conversation Entitled Taqwa in an age of universal disorder Part 1 dis- uh, Discussed the concept of taqwa And the need for our Reconceptualization of this concept Taqwa was not a euphemism for isolationism, for quietism, uh, for lack of action, um, detaching ourselves from the dunya. This was not taqwa. Taqwa was concerning ourselves with the commands and the prohibitions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in every facet of our life. And in this way, we want to look in the context in which we live today, how do we manifest this taqwa? Or in other words, what exactly does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ask of us? If the argument was Ramadan, this Ramadan in the age in which we live should not be uh, defined by how many verses we read or uh, how many prayers we pray, despite the goodness in all of that. Um, It's not even defined by the days in which we fast, the foods we eat or don't eat, or the things we do or don't do. In the era in which we live, which we, which we discussed in the previous session, the absence of Islam as a political manifestation, the occupation of Islamic lands, the comprehensive occupation of Islamic lands in every sense of the word, politically, economically, ideologically, culturally, given this reality and what we experience of war, of devastation, of conflict, of poverty, of, 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 and the list goes on. How is it possible that for all of us who profess to want to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this month, to so casually or so so um, neglectfully turn a blind eye to everything that is happening in, in uh, towards the ummah today, towards the world today. We live in an era of COVID. We're experiencing its devastations and yet the Muslim ummah and so many more behind us have experienced... Uh, COVID's of a thousand times over for the entirety of their life. It's impossible for those who profess to want to draw closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be so removed from what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is asking of us. In this sense, let's talk about some of the actions that indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is asking of us. The broad conceptualization is that Islam should occupy a particular space, and that is... It's a message for humanity. It's a message to everyone. And if we're not carrying this message to the entirety of humanity in the way that Islam demands, not just as an individual call, but as a political manifestation, allowing people to witness or experience the justice and the mercy and the greatness of Islam, how can we at any point and in any way pretend that we have fulfilled this great obligation? If lands are being occupied, how is it possible in the absence of the reversal of that occupation, can we 
stand before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and say that we fulfill our obligations towards Him and towards those who live under occupation. If there are mouths who have not been fed, if there are screams that have not been answered, if there is pain that has not been been treated, on every level and in every way, if these matters are outstanding, then how, in all sincerity, can we say that we are in fact pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? We discussed in the previous session the essence of what we're talking about today, which is Muslims in a state of universal powerlessness, dominated by the kuffar in its various forms, and have been for decades, if not centuries. Um, and this results in particular political manifestations, us being divided into countless countries, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has demanded we be united under one leader, and the Islamic lands be only one land. Um, the implementation of kufr over us, whether it's secularism, liberalism, democracy, whether it's the right-leaning governments or, or, or left-leaning governments, uh, whether it's democracies or dictatorships, civilian rule or military rule, uh, whether it's the relationship between the Muslim world and the Western world and the hierarchy that's been established as a product as a byproduct of colonialism. These are the realities in which we live today. Uh, and we need to address this as a fundamental consideration for us as Muslims. And so the question becomes, ultimately, how do we change our condition from one of powerlessness, where decisions are made for us, over us, um, to our own detriment, to a position where we are the determinants of our own destiny? We wield the power to implement Islam, to live by Islam and to, to build an Islamic life and ultimately to demonstrate that to the rest of the world. And of course, the obvious response is, well, let's go back to the life of the Prophet wasallam, and look at what steps he wasallam, did so we can replicate those too. There is no doubt that this is not a conversation that can be introduced and finalized in one sitting. Which is why I want to focus on this moment in the Sirah. And this is the period of, uh, of Dawah in Makkah, where the Muslims were in existence as individuals, but not as an Ummah. Where Muslims existed under the authority of Kufr and were stripped of the power needed to live and direct their lives according to Islam. Uh, the Muslims lived in the, in the midst of a hostile enemy who threw everything at them to move them away from their deen or to make life as difficult as possible for them, who fought tooth and nail to maintain a status quo that they established that ultimately served their interests and not of the Muslims. This was the life of the Prophet ﷺ in Mecca. And it's in this period that we need to peer into to derive some insights as to what exactly we need to be doing to ultimately reverse a set of conditions that is most analogous to the time of the Prophet ﷺ in Makkah. And I'll mention a couple of things. The first is the effort to overturn uh, radically and comprehensively the political condition of the Muslim world is not an individual consideration. It's not something I and you are going to do as individuals. This is the first and most important point we need to understand. Even with the Prophet 
He did not go about doing things himself, nor did the companions do things just willy-nilly, um, of their own volition and in any way, and the Dawa was some haphazard exercise of everyone doing whatever they felt was necessary or or priority at that time. No, everything was under the leadership of the Prophet wasallam and under the guidance of the Prophet wasallam not just as the Prophet, but of course as the leader of the Muslims at that time, the body of Muslims at that time. If we are not part of a collective that has as its purpose the radical transformation of political life in the Muslim world, then we are not part of the effort to re-establish Islam. Let's make that very clear. More than that, if the collective we are involved with does not have as its objective, practically, materially, to work to access power in order to alter the political conditions in the Muslim world, then we cannot describe that group as fulfilling the conditions of the group itself. Meaning, we need to think big because Islam demands it of us. We need to conceive ourselves in the same light that we are not just subordinates, model Muslim citizens who forever will be under the dictates of some other party. The Ummah can never accept that for itself, forever remain under the boots of the Kuffar, under the yoke of colonialism, or any other semblance of authority. We have a responsibility to carry our own Dawah, to implement our own Islam, to live our own way of life the way we conceive it in accordance with Islam. It's unacceptable to accept any other situation where that is not the case. And if the collective we are involved in is not thinking on that level, in those terms, then fundamentally we have a problem. And that is we're not thinking big enough. We're not thinking bold enough. We're not thinking in the way that Islam demands of us. From the very earliest days of the Prophet ﷺ, the Muslims were very clear that this da'wah, this Islam is going to reach all corners of the earth. Even though the starting point was Mecca, the transformation point became Medina, and that launched to the rest of mankind, but it started somewhere, but the vision was universal. It's not a small consideration. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَا يَجَلَ اللَّهِ لِلْكَافِرِينَ عَلَى الْمُؤْمِنِينَ سَبِيلَ That Allah will never accept, will never allow. Meaning we should never uh, believe for a moment that it's acceptable to remain under this condition, which is, Right for the kuffar, disbelievers to have a way, authority, dominance over us, which is the life in which we live today. And having that in mind, we come together as a collective to maneuver, to agitate, to push forward for this very specific purpose to recapture the power that exists within the Muslim, within the Ummah. Materially, physically, spiritually, in every sense of the word, ideologically, culturally, um, in every sense of the word, but for the purpose of reordering what's in front of us. And so on this point, if we are serious about rectifying the condition of the Ummah, if we are serious about altering the political space in which Muslims live, in reversing centuries of colonialism in the Muslim world, um, developing independent will 
an independent power base, um, then the collective effort in which we engage must be established and must function for that purpose with that objective in mind. The other side of that is, well, if we're aiming for anything less than that, then we're not thinking big enough. We're not thinking big enough in the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to think big. So if we are primarily concerned with teaching Muslims their deen in an abstract sense, or we are aiming to develop model Muslim citizens where they just find a comfortable space for them within the status quo, we're not thinking big enough. If we are engaged in an effort collectively as part of some group or party where we seek to negotiate and share power in the Muslim world, then we're not thinking big enough. If our efforts ultimately reinforce the colonial architecture that's been introduced in the Muslim world, we're not thinking big enough. If compromise exists on any level within this collective, wherever it's conceptual, wherever it's political, then we're not thinking big enough. And these are all matters not for us to decide. For Islam is not ours to begin with. And so the very first point we need to understand is that if we are serious about creating change, the change that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala demands of us, to ensure that Islam occupies a space that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has determined for it and for us by virtue of our attachment to it, then we need to join a collective effort to make this a reality. I know in the West, predominantly, that for a large part, you know, relatively speaking, is very entrenched with the concept of individualism. Uh, and one of the side effects of this is that we as Muslims, as individuals, uh, are going to be affected by this. And when it comes to political activism for us as Muslims, one of its consequences is that we feel uncomfortable uh, or naturally feel a discomfort or an element of hostility towards the collective to begin with. Uh, and this exists for many reasons, one of which is we place an undue emphasis on uh, our own intellects, our own individuality, what we think is right, what we think is good, what we think is the best way forward. And the idea of submitting to a higher opinion, uh, to an overriding opinion, for a lot of us is discomforting. We're not used to it. Um, and we see that in the smallest of ways. We see that, for instance, you know, in workplaces, um, you know, we have this entitled mentality where we go in um, and we remain in the, in the place of employment for as long as it fulfills our needs. And the moment it doesn't, or the moment it clashes with our own priorities, then we move on very casually, very easily. Same with relationships, same with uh, sibling rivalries, same with, in so many aspects, or even simple material considerations like cars and homes. If it clashes with our own sense of individuality, then many a time what gets discarded is the higher order. And we constantly reinforce and center the individual. And that's going to be a problem for us Islamically. So if we have an element of distrust for collective work, for groups, Islamic parties, movements, etc., 
then we need to genuinely question uh, why this is the case and whether that is the correct approach to take. Um, if we find that we, we, we find there is difficulty submitting to collective opinions, um, overriding opinions, and we want to constantly advance our own individual opinions about things, then we need the question, is that genuinely an Islamic position to take on matters where the collective overrides the individual? So on these questions, we need to genuinely reassess how we look at ourselves and our our role within Islamic activism and whether there needs to be a modification of the balance between the individual and the collective such that it becomes easy for us to work in a group in a collective manner for a collective objective without which the, 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 the objectives of Islam could not be accomplished. That's the first point. The second point is in the context of this struggle about overturning the universal disorder in front of us is that there are two fronts to this and one you would broadly describe as intellectual to do with ideas and concepts and the rest and the second category would be political broadly in terms of our loyalties and what spills from it and on the first front again if we are serious about confronting the universal disorder in which we live recapturing power, changing the condition of the Ummah from one of relative powerlessness to one of being in complete power and authority over our own affairs, then we need to confront the foreign ideologies imposed over us and which still to this day influences us in no small way. And so we need to be able to recognize what is Islamic and what isn't. And we need to, in order to do that, we need to invest our time, effort, resources to understanding what is Islamic. Now that's easier said than done uh, in many ways, but at the same time, it's not as difficult as it sounds. Let me explain this. The notion of traditionalism in Islam, of classical orthodoxy in Islam, is a, is a well-established one. And it's something that saves us in an era where everything is a question of relativity, subjectivity that in Islam we have an anchor. We have the example of the Prophet ﷺ. We have that example demonstrated through the life of the companions, may Allah be pleased with them all, and ultimately codified in the era of the classical scholars and the development of the madhabs that followed that. Meaning whatever we confront, there is a, an anchor to which we can return. A fixed criteria even for new considerations, matters which classical scholars did not discuss, there is the corpus of usul that allows us to return to the sources of Islam in a consistent way to understand what is and isn't Islamic. We need to be well grounded in that. But at the same time, we need to be conscious of efforts by the kuffar that want to teach us our Islam for us. And obviously that's going to have a huge implication over us, which is why it's not uncommon today to find opinions, for instance, um, arguing for doing away with uh, the Friday Jummah. That why do we need to congregate on a weekly basis when we can exist in the virtual world like we have been during the COVID era? Very modest, modernist opinion with zero Islamic backing, but, it, but we have compromised on much bigger things. Um, it's not unusual to hear opinions that 
do away with the notion of Khilafah, for instance, arguing that uh, there is no uh, centrality of ruling or system of ruling within Islam, and that is a product of time and place, um, and various other considerations. If we are going to confront the disorder which we face today, we need to be prepared with our Islam in order to confront it. Exactly like the Prophet ﷺ, when he addressed the people of Quraysh, the society of Quraysh, it was from an entirely exclusively Islamic grounding upon which he challenged, Sallallahu challenged Kufr. Now the Kufr in his days was primarily Shirk. And the Kufr in our days, while still has the same essence, its manifestations will be different. So we need to confront that which ultimately has created the disorder in the world today of which the Muslim world is, is a product of. And so, for instance, notions like secularism, notions like racism, notions like the modern nation state, notions like democracy, liberalism, etc. These are the foundations upon which colonialism has always rested and, and the mo- its modern variation of neocolonialism too. If we're grounded in our Islam, then it serves us in the sense of deter- being able to determine what is right and what is wrong, what is Islamic and what is un-Islamic, but at the same time allows us to delineate and to separate the good from the bad and ultimately to confront it. And so it gives us a basis upon which to challenge what is in front of us. Because we don't respond to democracy simply for the fact that um, it's not genuinely representative. That's not the Islamic argument. You would challenge democracy, for instance, ultimately because it places sovereignty in the hands of men as opposed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there are many other instances and examples like that. But what I want to stress here, and I think this is a phenomenon that applies mostly to Muslims in the West, is that when we study these matters, that we do not study them from a theoretical or abstract in an uh, in a theoretical or abstract sense meaning even if we ent- we engage in discussions and studies around liberalism racism uh, state modern statehood and every other every other possible consideration we do it in the context of our islamic struggle and so it's situated and positioned within the broader islamic struggle not in and of itself. And it has to serve a practical function that when we do engage in study, it's not study for study's sake. When we engage in conversation, it's not conversation for conversation's sake. Um, So when we address these issues, it's to serve the purpose of our activism. And ultimately, again, in the age of disorder in which we live, it's to allow Muslims the ability to recapture the power that they lost so they enjoy independent will after that and have the ability to implement Islam practically and universally. So we need to, on an intellectual front, understand our Islam and use that as the basis for our confrontation with what opposes it. This is the first front. On the second front is the political side. And that ultimately is about challenging loyalties and hierarchies and and uh, um, uh, you know a position on deposits of power places of power that are filtered throughout the lands in various ways um, as the prophet ﷺ challenged abu jahl and abu lahab and other leaders of quraysh at his time 
The objective was to move the population against those leaders and what they represented. And this is important. It's not just targeting them as individuals, but targeting them as uh, bastions or representatives of the system itself. Now, in the era of the Prophet ﷺ, that was uh, easy to determine because the system was ultimately invested in its leadership, despite it having a broad public appeal. Um, but it was not as sophisticated as we experience it today, though its essence is unchanged. Um, the rulers in the Muslim world represent something very specific. Um, first of all, they're not rulers, they're employees. They don't exist independently. They are placed in those positions by those who enjoy the real power, which are the colonialist countries. Historically, Britain, France, predominantly today, um, America. In this sense, as the Prophet moved against Quraysh, when you hear verses like, uh, verses we all learn since we are children, right? when the Prophet um, proclaimed these verses that ultimately targeted Abu Lahab not just as an individual, but as a leader of Quraysh. And it applied as much to Abu Lahab as all the other leaders with the same characteristics who were part of the same campaign against the Prophet And it exposed him in front of his people. And there were many efforts to do that. In the same way, those who have, the, who have usurped the power today need to be challenged and resisted and ultimately the legitimacy in which they, they, on, on which they stand needs to be shaken. Now to bring this down to something entirely practical, we need to be able to position things correctly. That the rulers in the Muslim world are placed there for a reason. Fundamentally to protect and preserve the status quo that colonialist nations established in those lands. None of them should be looked upon firstly as individuals they represent a system secondly that system is built on kufur built on colonial subjugation thirdly whatever basis they have whatever form of legitimacy they enjoy our actions and efforts need to be structured in a way that ultimately is to designed to strip that legitimacy away from them Whatever power they rest on, we have to shake that power base. And that means in very simple ways, right? Whilst we are having this conversation from the West, um, it does not mean that we are independent of what's happening in the Muslim world. Representatives of those rulers um, who have their embassies and their cultural attaches and their political attaches and, and whatnot, we cannot allow ourselves to engage them in a way that ultimately reinforces their legitimacy they have none in the eyes of Islam they have none they are enemies of Islam they and the system they represent are enemies of Islam and what do you think what message does it send when we comfortably very casually have dinners with them or break our, break our fast with them or we offer public supplications for them or we allow ourselves to be wielded by the money which they possess. All of these actions, whilst we may see only snippets of it and be a product of only a part of it, serve to reinforce the legitimacy that they rest on. How can we allow that for ourselves if the objective is, as Islam demands, the complete 
overhaul of the political framework in the Muslim world. And the rule the authorities connected to them are central to that. Are we comfortable, for instance, of meeting with uh, police and intelligence agencies, arms of these rulers? Um, are we comfortable working for them? Are we comfortable defending their existence, their presence and their work and everything they represent? Or is our Dawah and our activism ultimately uh, to delegitimize them, to shake the foundations they rest on, to mobilize the people, to rebel against them and to tear down the, the, the architecture that they rest on? This is the question we need to ask. And the point for us is, in what period can we undertake these great and noble actions uh, that are more serving than in the month of Ramadan? Should we be increasing our resolve in this month uh, to push uh, the people, the population, the public sentiment against the rulers and everything they represent, the institutions, the political class that the Kufar established for us and imposed over us, in what better month is there than the month of Ramadan to increase our effort to ensure this happens? It's not an accident that we just commemorated the Battle of Badr, one of the greatest, most decisive battles in Islamic history. Uh, that occurred in which month? The month of Ramadan. Do you think the companions, the Prophet and the companions at that time, took the view that Ramadan is a month of seclusion, Ramadan is a month of quietism, Ramadan is a month where we do away with dunya considerations. No, they fought in this month and they achieved a decisive victory in this month and it paved the way to open up the whole of the peninsula for the, for the, for the spread of Islam. And it happened in this month. Jerusalem was finally recaptured in this month. The Battle of Ain Jalut ultimately was resolved in this month and there are so many <clears throat> instances in Islamic history where the decisiveness occurred in this month because the Muslims understood the barakah, the reward that is available only in this month and went out and sought the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by doing what was asked of them by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this noble month. We live in an age of universal disorder. The world is upside down. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not given the status that he deserves. The shara is subordinate to man-made law. Uh, the Islam and Muslims are subject to the power of the kuffar. And how is it possible then, given that situation, that we use this month to turn our eyes away from all of this? No, Ramadan is a month of action, not a month of seclusion. And because we live in an age of universal disorder, it is more incumbent on us to rectify that. But we've got to be real about this and we've got to be practical about this. I can't possibly um, cover what needs to be covered in, in one sitting. But what I want to stress is that the situation we face is that Muslims enjoy relative powerlessness that that power, that authority, that ability to direct their own will and actions has been usurped by the kuffar. 
And it's our fundamental responsibility to reverse that. Everything we experience of war, of conflict, of poverty, of, 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 and the list goes on, is a byproduct of that. We all wish for things. We all wish that there wasn't war. We all wish that we could reverse occupation. We all wish that we could do away with the rulers. We all wish that we could send um, you know, the representatives of colonial nations back to where they came from. We wish for a lot of things. But without power, how is that going to happen? Without independent power, how is that going to happen? Our efforts, our actions need to be in accordance with that. Be part of the collective effort that has this vision, that is working practically to bring this about and engage in those actions, both intellectual and political, that ultimately serve this purpose. These are the priority actions required of us today. Everything else should be subordinate to that and should, should be working around that. We cannot close our eyes to the world in which we live, a world of universal disorder. It is incumbent upon us to correct our own affairs and indeed the affairs of mankind. We pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows us to do this and blesses us in this month with a decisive victory as he granted and blessed many Muslims before us in this noble month, insha'Allah. From me, from now, we say, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.